The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, offering support for your spiritual growth and addiction recovery. Here's Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice and Reverend Dan Beckett. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery on Unity Online Radio. We're glad you're with us today. I am Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice. And I'm Reverend Dan Beckett. And together, we discuss the ways that spirituality and recovery intertwine and work together to support your spiritual growth in your recovery journey. And so today's show is an interactive discussion. So if you're listening live, you can call in with your comments and questions. The number is 816-251-3555. Again, the number is 816-251-3555. Facebook users, you can also connect with us on our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery, to share your thoughts and comments. So most people who have suffered from the disease of addiction will describe their experience, um, many experiences in life, as standing on the outside looking in. The spiritual principle of unity changes us. We rise above our selfishness, the isolation and perceived separation, and we come together for the good of the whole. And today we'll begin by sharing our own experiences of living in isolation and then move into the solution of the principle of unity. And after the break, we'll share exactly how we use that principle of unity to create lives of joy and connection. So, Lonnie, have you ever experienced isolation as part of your recovery journey? Well, you know, I think some people think about isolation as being shunned by families and friends. But I learned somewhere along the way that that addiction is considered a disease of loneliness. You know, it is a disease of separation and isolation. And I have lived in that way longer and way more often than I wish I had. Um, in fact, my earliest memories are of feeling like I was on the outside looking in, feeling like I didn't quite belong, I didn't quite fit, I wasn't really sure I should be there, and all of the uh, loneliness and fear that goes along with that. I also remember feeling like um, I didn't quite fit in. Uh, other people were sort of a mystery, uh, felt different, Feel, just feeling that kind of isolation that I now can look back and see that, um, although I'm not sure that there was anything I could have done differently, I think I needed to walk through it. But like many things in life, for, for me, I feel like it was um, you know, self, self-created. I do remember as a young child, always, I always wanted to do things by myself. I mean, I, at three years old, I'm thinking, uh, you know, th- uh, around that era 
whatever it is. So the, the drive to not have to be involved with others, you know, to be able to do things by myself is very, very old in me. One of the things I remember is being um, forced in community, if you will. I had three younger sisters, and we were all within a five-year span of time. And so as the eldest, I was often tasked with looking after them, taking care of them, playing with them, being with them, all of that kind of thing. And I had felt pretty, uh, I won't say isolated, pretty much like a loner. I wanted to do my own thing, but yet responsibilities were um, calling my name. And so I I looked for ways to be apart from sometimes. If anybody's ever had a little sister will understand. <laughs> yes. I remember that I that I and this is what I'll describe now is sort of it's a it's a current perspective on an old way of being because I don't know that I could have seen this then. But uh, I know now that when I was young, you know, thinking again as a child that that I didn't really trust other people to be there for me emotionally. You know, I think uh, as children, we're all. Uh, very raw in many ways, and some way or other along the line, uh, I decided that I that I couldn't rely on other people to be there for me, and so I was better off if I just kept things to myself. That's one way that I um, actively, really actively practiced isolating was by um, refusing to share what was going on with me. Now, I have to assume that that was for good reasons, right? Not just because I was um, not very smart or not just because uh, it would have turned out well if I had tried it. I suspect it did not turn out well, and that's why I stopped trying it. But i that's definitely a, a hallmark of my growing up is that I did not want to share with other people what was going on with me. Another experience that I had was... Um, physical, and that is in teasing. I learned how really brutal kids can be in um, junior high and, you know, in, in uh, what do they call it, middle school now. I was, I grew six inches one summer, and so I was tall, and I was awkward, and I was skinny, and I was not well coordinated, and, you know, but yet I was involved in sports and things like that, and so, you know, I was the brunt of um, teasing along those different lines, names, um, you know, ridicule whenever I would trip or whatever. And, and I remember feeling very different then. I'm not you, like you. I'm not one of the cool kids. I'm not one of the, the very athletic, able to do anything anywhere, anytime, you know, playing ball, that kind of thing. And thinking I was too, you could just say too anything, too tall, too skinny. I was um, valedictorian uh, in oftentimes in my class, and I was a, a second runner-up for the salutorian in my graduating class, And but I was too smart, and, uh, you know, so I wasn't accepted by your average kids. I did not feel accepted by your average kids, and yet I didn't quite make the grade with the smart kids, so I always felt like I was in this in-between place. I also feel that way, and, I, and I've noted that uh, in, in many ways in my life, uh, uh, I feel like that that's a role that I'd carved out for myself at, at some point and always um, sort of ended up in the oddball in the middle sort of group. You know, I have um, I've been involved with business software, but that software runs uh, on the Mac. 
And so it's you sort of get it from both sides. Unity as a as a spiritual movement, also the same way. You know, we get uh, people who don't want to hear anything that sounds like um, God or Jesus or Bible. You know, they run when they first hear the words, and then of course from the super conservative side on the other, uh, we're doing it wrong as far as they're concerned as well. And I noticed that uh, where did I end up? I ended up in the what for me is the perfect fit, but can also be seen as kind of, you know, the oddball in the middle kind of movement. I like to think that we got it right, and that's why we're sitting in the middle. But that that idea of not really fitting in here or there uh, is something I, I had carried for a long time. It's, it's gotten a lot better. It's still, it's not that it's gone. It's just not uh, predominant as much. Somewhere along the way, it lost its importance for me. I can recall, though, being a Pepsi drinker in a Coke world and a Ford driver in a Chevy world, you know, and a John Deere tractor person in a Alice Chalmers world. I mean, you know, there was all these ways that I just did not work. And but and, and at that point in my life, it was of great and grave importance to fit in. Somewhere along the way, though, after I discovered alcohol, I rela- realized that uh, drinking relieved those feelings of isolation and loneliness. And it did not matter. I didn't care anymore what anybody else thought or why they thought their vehicle was better than mine or any of those kind of things. And um, that relieved those feelings of being unloved and unwanted and alone. And I just used it to run. I've found that, uh, in a way, alcohol acted as a kind of, um, oh, I don't know what's the right sort of substance. You sort of I pour it on my life and it would fill in all the gaps. And then all of a sudden there weren't any gaps anymore and everything was smooth and everything felt connected. And yeah, that, that was uh, and definitely an early hook for me uh, when it came to alcohol is that it, it seemed you know, short term, but hey, I can always do it again tomorrow. It seemed to bridge all of those disconnections. And and I didn't even know that that's what was going on. I just knew that I liked it. You know, being able to say uh, and see disconnections and be able to recognize how alcohol kind of uh, made it feel like all those things were connected, that is a that is a modern perspective in my life. That is not how I understood it back then. I remember the first time I heard that phrase, terminally unique. I liked that. Uh, I first liked it because I thought how, how perfectly it described other people. And then I began to realize, you know what? I might have to uh, look in the mirror and, and see how it can also describe me. And it's such a, a short way of, uh, in a sense of summarizing what it was like for me to, to live feeling fairly disconnected, but not knowing it. Um, because when I'm, when I was not connected to others, I could not see the, their inner experience, right? I didn't have a, a close enough relationship to begin to really get a sense of what someone else's life was like for them. And, and that leaves me only familiar with the internals of one life, mine, and nobody else had that, hence terminally unique. And so for me, I made some decisions 
I know today that I, they were made subconsciously, not a conscious kind of decision, but they were things around um, becoming self-sufficient. Don't ask for help. If I do that, I open myself to, uh, I, you know, becoming vulnerable opens oneself to the potential of being hurt. Um, and so my thinking patterns were driven by fear. And underneath all of that was a lack of acceptance for self because I took a lot of things uh, that people would say as truth you know, as defining me. And I, and I can see when I look back on that, that that codependency started early in terms of going, oh, that's who I am. Oh, you know, I have to do this because of, of them. And so I, I grew up with this very large sense of being not enough that carried over into everything I did. And as the um, alcoholism progressed, there's a phrase that we use to talk about the dual personalities we develop, the, the, the person we are when we're not under the influence and when we're operating in our right mind and the person that uh, uh, is, you know, out of the mind. And that's the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. You know, it, it fed my fraud syndrome that I, that I wasn't who I said I was. I remember that I got uh, really good at, figuring things out for myself. And this is reminding me of, of the, you know, the core principle of balance because there's nothing wrong with being able to figure things out for oneself. Uh, you know, my challenge uh, was, and perhaps to some degree still is, that uh, that was my go-to, that was my only way of approaching things is that I'm going to figure this out for myself. I don't want anyone telling me how it works. They're probably wrong anyway, and I'll figure it out for myself and then I'll know. Now, of course, the upside to that is uh, I, I got pretty good at solving problems and I got pretty good at understanding, um, you know, the, the relationships between things and how stuff worked and what affected what and you know, they call that um, being able to see root causes. I got, I'm really good at being able to see root causes. And that's the, you know, the blessing of that. But my life has been so much better um, later in life as I got more in balance. So I, I can hang on to that skill, but I can also um, be willing to engage others and not always have to have it be about figuring it out. And, you know, loneliness and isolation and separation for me is not only connected with my childhood. It happens every time I have to make a move from one community to another. And it happened for me when I found I was allergic to cigarette smoke and I had to leave my 12-step group because it was a smoking group. And so, you know, this is an experience I've had over and over in my life. But, you know, we know that there's this challenge of living in isolation. So what's the solution? Uh, unity we affirm that we affirm unity, <laughs> unity, exactly. <the> spiritual principle. <laughs> we know and we affirm that we're all connected, and in truth, we're never alone. We see this not only in the way each of us is connected as human beings to one another, but also in the way that we're one with God in all of creation. So this kind of deep connection and oneness is what can lead us out of this life of isolation. And so that's what we want to focus on today. So how do we get from the idea of connection and oneness to living a connected and joyous life? One thing for me that answers that question is, um, or let me, let me describe what 
connection feels like. So, so we've talked a lot about what isolation feels like. I'm very, very familiar with that. Uh, I have um, fortunately been blessed with the opportunity to become much more familiar with feeling connected. And one thing that that looks like for me, and these, this sounds so simple. It, it sounds almost like, uh, you know, something that's obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me and it wasn't in play in my life. Something as simple as appreciating others, you know, developing the skill of uh, actively appreciating what others had to offer. So as before, um, I didn't want to hear it. I was going to figure it out myself. Uh, I didn't. I didn't trust it. it what they said might have confused me. Uh, then I might have felt vulnerable. No, no, no. I'm just going to do all this by myself. Um, has I've added to those skills the ability to just sort of sit back and appreciate what others have to offer. Slow down. You know, take a look at what it is and see the good in it. Uh, for me you know, unity can be as simple as, as something like that. When I entered the recovery movement, I was told I could not recover alone. I didn't like that, but I was told that I needed a spiritual community. I needed a spiritual community to grow emotionally and to grow spiritually. And so, you know, um, one of the traditions in, in the 12-step recovery is that of unity, which says that our common welfare is what is primary. And that is diametrically opposed to my thinking pattern at the point when I entered the, the program, which is, it's all about me, 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 me. What do I want? What do I need? What am I going to get? You know, and, and that is what I would say, non-unity. So, you know, practicing this, this, um, this principle, it, it speaks to cohesiveness, inclusion, um, non-separation, um, you know, I always have to start with what does it not look like? Because that's where my life began. It does not look like selfishness, for example, or being all about me. It does not look like being hostile to others or taking other people's inventory, which I was pretty good at, you know, till my sponsor told me, you spot it, you got it. <laughs> I, I remember hearing that uh, saying that nobody can do our inner work for us, but we can't do it alone. And that's the paradox for me of, of community. And, and it shows me um, how important community is, which, you know, I didn't really know until I got in recovery, until I really began to learn how to enjoy being a part, you know, being part of the group. Um, but, but that idea that, of course, it's true that no one, nobody's going to, I can't hire someone to do my uh, morning meditation time. Right. I can't hire someone to go to counseling for me and I can't hire someone to, you know, actively work on uh, showing up uh, in a better way in relationships. So nobody can do my inner work for me, but it's also absolutely true. I cannot do it by myself. You know, that idea of the the guru on the mountaintop is, is just that it, it's an idea. Um, anybody who is as wise as the guru on the mountain is purported to be is not sitting there in isolation, I guarantee it. So for me, it required a change of focus. Instead of being about me, it needed to be about the group. And, um, you know, and it mean, mean making a commitment. It meant choosing a spiritual committee, um, you know, a, a, not just a committee, but a, a community and showing up, suiting up and showing up over and over and over again, being somebody that uh, could be counted on 
to be present, even just to be present when I didn't feel like I was able to contribute anything else. Um, and later on, it looks like participation, you know, helping to build whatever's being built, the consciousness, the, uh, the group uh, operating processes, whatever it is. And, um, you know, the, the good of the group becomes paramount, the common welfare, instead of my welfare. Right. That principle that says that our common welfare comes first for me is so profound because I know that if we did not maintain unity as a group, the group would not be there for me. And it wouldn't be there for everyone who came after me. I mean, I, I was the one that came after everyone, right? The day I walked in, I was the one that came after everyone. Now that I've been around a while, others, of course, are coming in, and, and I'm the one sitting in the in the chair. But if, if we don't maintain unity as a group, and, and I'll just use the word group uh, very loosely, certainly a, a recovery group, that fits. Um, it, it applies to the unity movement, perhaps. It, accries, it applies to all of humanity, in a way, that if we can't maintain uh, our unity, then the whole thing falls apart. Uh, one way that, uh, one thing that unity looks like for me also is, and this was new uh, at some point, certainly not the way I was as a kid, is feeling genuinely comfortable in the company of others. I mean, even when I was willing to be in the company of others, I can't say I felt genuinely comfortable in the company of others. And, you know, in the last bunch of years, roughly along uh, the same time frame as uh, my recovery journey, I have got to a place where I do feel genuinely comfortable in the company of others. That's what unity looks like. One thing, one way that unity looks for me. Another way it looks for me is that I've already mentioned the word commitment, and you brought it to mind when you were talking about groups. I'm thinking about a meditation group I was a part of um, for a time period. When people don't show up, there is no group. Um, you know, the same thing with a book study group, uh, the same thing with a supper club. You know, it, it requires commitment. And for me to make a commitment, I used to make be able to make them left and right whenever I was still out there and didn't really care a lot whether I kept my commitments. But today, part of unity looks like integrity to me. I don't make a commitment if I don't intend to keep it. You know, and if I make one, I do intend to keep it. And that's, you know, unity within myself, because then I'm not doing the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. Yeah. Another way that unity looks uh, for me is, is when I'm willing to ask for help. You know, that's something that I, if you, as you heard me share before, I really had to learn how to do that. I mean, that is the last thing that I want to do was to ask somebody to help me. Because if I ask somebody to help me, a few things are going on that I used to really not like. One is I am uh, acknowledging my ignorance. That was not a good thing for me to do uh, when I was a kid. It'd be better just to, to be quiet than to make it known that there's something I didn't get. Um, willing to ask for help from others means that I'm, I'm asking them to give me input, which was always challenging in the past. But nowadays, uh, I'm, not, I'm not only willing to ask people for help, I really enjoy uh, accomplishing things with other people. It's, I mean, this seems so silly. It's so much easier 
you know, I think, well, how did I live my most of my life like this and not realize, you know, life is actually so much easier if I'm willing to ask others for help. And the, and of course, the corollary to that is I'm willing to show up and to be of help to others. And I can learn to be a good helper uh, by the ways that I appreciate uh, people helping. You know, if, if I ask for help, I don't, I'm not asking for someone to take over everything, right? To kind of push me aside and, and do it all their way. And so if I'm, if I'm a, a good helper, then I would like to avoid uh, taking over and, and simply contribute what's being asked and in the best way that I can. So I mentioned earlier that sometimes I have to start with what not to do. <laughs> you know, I can recognize what is not unity pretty easily from experiences in my own life. And one of them has to do with humor. There's an awful lot of humor that is not a healing attitude. Um, you know, it, it, it makes fun of somebody. It, um, you know, it uses sarcasm. It draws unflattering parallels. I had to learn how to not do that. You know, how can I be a healing presence in this room? Oftentimes it's keeping my mouth shut. You know, it took a while to change some of those thinking patterns. But, you know, unity feels healing to me. It feels welcoming and inclusive, um, not being separated out, you know, uh, pointed out, made made the example, um, you know, and it feels like being considerate of others and others being considerate of me. That That feels like unity to me. It feels like we're all on the same page. We're all going the same direction. One thing I love about um, the unity communities that I've been in, certainly the unity of Augusta community, Augusta, Georgia, that I'm in now, is that uh, we are, as a group, and I love being a part of this, so genuinely uh, welcoming to others. I remember uh, early in my unity career, you know, this was um, before I got clean and sober, uh, I had discovered Unity Church. Now, I, I didn't go to church. I went as a kid. I hated it. Uh, and I didn't go to church for almost 30 years before I walked back into what I now know as a Unity Church. And at that Unity Church, uh, is, you know, it's a wonderful group of people who genuinely love to be there and love to see one another. And I remember one of the most striking examples for me at that time. So this was years ago. Um, there was a man... Uh, probably 60-something, uh, if, I'm, if I'm gauging right, who uh, wore dresses. Uh, now, he didn't, he, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't cross-dressing with makeup and hair. He was just a guy wearing dress. And I remember walking in and saying, oh, there's a dude in a dress. And nobody cared, and I didn't care either. And that was such a great, uh, to me, example of that everybody's welcome. Um, I had a friend ask me who, who wants to go to uh, church some at some point with me, what should I wear? And I had to sit back and think about it. I thought, well, you should wear clothes. But other than that, you know, no one's even going to look twice at you. You could wear a sweatshirt and shorts and sandals, and no one's going to think anything of it. You know, it's almost uh, the other way around for us. If you had on a, a jacket and a tie as, as a man, th then you might stand out. Um, but heck, you could go in a dress. <laughs> so let's hold that thought because it's time for a short break. And when we come back, we'll open the phone line for callers. And we'll continue this conversation. The number is 816-251-3555. Please stay with us.
Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, we hope you will give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the support of listeners like you to continue operating and expand its outreach. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Catherine Ponder, taken from a classic talk called The Prosperous Truth, recorded at Unity of Austin in 1991. God is extravagant supply. Get that, extravagant. God is extravagant supply. He brings forth the best robe. He spreads a banquet table, as we saw last night, with good things on which we may feast. He overflows our cup. He opens the windows of heaven and pours out a blessing. And then this is what that Unity Correspondence Course said. Why are you satisfied with such meager living when you may have so much? To find out more about Unity teachings, visit unity.org. For over 23 years, Liz Dunn and the team at Celebrate Your Life have been presenting life-changing events with some of the world's leading spiritual teachers. Experience a Celebrate Your Life event for yourself in 2019. Tickets are available now for the International Women's Summit, March 7th to 10th in Phoenix, Arizona, featuring some of the most inspirational speakers in the realm of mind, body, and spirit. Do something for yourself this year. Go to CelebrateYourLife.com and reserve your space today. If you've been on a spiritual path for a long time, what can you read that's new and exciting? Try Unity Magazine. It's designed for the seasoned spiritual student with in-depth articles and interviews about spiritual practices and philosophies. Our columnists share their own faith journeys and cover healing, science, and psychology with even a little scripture thrown in. You'll read some classic authors and some new ones. Get a free trial issue at unitymagazine.org. Take a trip with Rev. Paul John Roach every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Central and tune in to World Spirituality. A lifelong student and practitioner of many world spiritual teachings, Paul guides you to the unity and common values shared by all world religions. We really are all connected. Take a journey with Paul and explore our planet's spiritual landscape with insight, humor, and practical advice for all. Join the show with your question or comment right here on Unity Online Radio. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery with Rev. Lonnie Vanderslice and Rev. Dan Beckett. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're glad you're with us today, and if you're just joining us, my name is Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice, and I'm here with Reverend Dan Beckett. 
We're going to resume our discussion in just a moment, but first we want to let you know that we're opening the lines for callers. So if you have a question or comment to share, please give us a call at 816-251-3555. Again, the number is 816-251-3555. So just prior to our break, we were discussing the experiences of isolation that uh, and loneliness and separation that we've had, and then what what unity, the principal unity, uh, community connection feels like. And so we're going to continue our discussion by talking about um, what's the solution. So Dan, we know the challenge is isolation, and the solution is unity or connection. How exactly can we use this principle to create a life of joy and connection? Well, my answer is always one day at a time, one foot in front of the other. And one way that I was able to move from isolation to connection is just through practice, you know, through through being willing to show up. You know, at first, uh, when I came in to the rooms, and this is uh, very common advice, you know, we're told to attend 90 meetings in 90 days to uh, get a sponsor, to begin uh, working the steps, and to uh, get telephone numbers from other group members um, each day and to call somebody. So uh, maybe call uh, a sponsor each day and just one other person on the list. So just through practice and being willing to show up is is a, a way that I was able to move over time, of course. And that's why I joke is one day at a time. That's exactly how it works. One foot in front of the other is exactly how it works. Same way you run a marathon, right? One foot in front of the other, just through practice, through willing to show up each and every day. It works. So I was walked into my first meeting with a temporary sponsor. I was handed off to somebody and I didn't really have the courage to ask anybody to be a sponsor. Um, But I finally acquired one and I was whining one day to my sponsor about how I didn't feel included. There's all these activities going on and there's all these other people there and I'm sitting on the outside looking in. And she said something that I will never forget. She says, you will be a part of when you decide to be. And I didn't really understand all of that, but she, but she gave me some examples. She said, well, when you come into the room, don't go sit at a table by yourself. Go sit by somebody, you know. And she said, you can get up and pour coffee or you can open the door. You can greet people. You can talk to the newest person in the room. When you decide to get up and start putting action to it, you will become a part of. Another way that I moved from from a life of isolation to um, connection is through my first home group. So the first year that I was sober, um, there was a noon, a, you know, a noon meeting. Um, we call it the midday group. I think there are probably hundreds or thousands of midday groups uh, around the around the world because we met at noon and it was near my office, so I could get something to eat and walk there. And uh, just again through just showing up. Um, I really loved that group. It was the perfect place for me as a newly sober person because everyone was really welcoming and there was a lot of uh, a lot of laughing and a lot of camaraderie and many of the same people uh, showed up each day. So it, it had kind of a cohesion that I fairly quickly uh, 
saw and and got accustomed to and really began to love and became a part of. You know, I became one of the people that was almost always there. It was very rare that I would miss a day. So I moved from isolation to connection again just by showing up. Uh, this time happens to be showing up at a particular um, recovery group meeting and and just really learning to love the environment just by being in it. Or as my uh, friend used to say about uh, learning recovery through osmosis, right? I go to the meeting and I sit my butt down and I learn how this works through the process of osmosis. <laughs> so another thing that I did was volunteer. And I have found that to work in any environment. When I am uncomfortable, when I don't feel a part of, when I feel like I'm sitting on the outside looking in, when I get up and volunteer, here, let me help you pass out the books. Here, let me help you rearrange the chairs. Here, I'll, I'll make the coffee. Um, you know, any of those kinds of small tasks do two things. They alleviate my discomfort internally because I'm doing something. And the other thing they do is they make me feel a part of. I'm contributing. I'm becoming a part of the group when I do that. And then after I do that a while, oh my gosh, somebody asks asks me to do something. It isn't that I'm just volunteering. And and um, I am told to say yes. And so I, I say yes. And before I know it, I'm leading a meeting. And I'm terrified of leading a meeting because <laughs> what if I do it wrong? You know, what if I pick the wrong reading? What if I don't do the prayer right? What if I forget something? You know, all of those kind of things. And I found out that nobody cares because they're there for them. They're not there to look at what I'm doing. That's right. And, and, and I learned at that time it was all written down on a piece of paper in front of me. And all I had to do was read the right piece. And I thought, that I can do. Uh, another way I moved from isolation to connection and community was through learning to listen. And, and this may have been even against my will. I noticed, uh, and, and it's related um, also to just being willing to show up and to going that, that first year, particularly that first year that I was sober, going to that midday meeting uh, every weekday. Um, I noticed that, so we were there maybe an hour. And if I talked at all, during the meeting, it was only would be for a few minutes if I shared something. And there were many days when I didn't share at all, which means I wasn't talking at all, which means uh, between 57 and 60 minutes every meeting, I was listening and I learned to listen through that. Now, I, uh, you know, I'm sure I did a lot of eye rolling and a lot of looking at my watch. Uh, what when's this going to be over um, at first? But just by being present, I really did learn to listen listen to others and and to really look forward to um, hearing from people, especially people that I liked or or I looked up to. Um, you know, hearing somebody with some time share about a situation they've been in that's a lot like something I've experienced, um, I was motivated to listen. So I moved from isolation to connection by learning to listen at uh, recovery group meetings. Listening always works for me. I had to make a conscious decision several uh, years in because the meetings seemed to be getting dry. And once again, it was setting in that I'm different. I've already heard this. I already know that, you know, that type of attitude that can be separating again. And I started carrying a little notebook 
with me to the meetings and I made a decision, I am going to find one thing in this meeting that I can use that I haven't heard or that I've forgotten and use it as a tool. And so I have a whole shelf full of notebooks now that, from meetings that I've, and I can pull them out and look at them and go, oh yeah, I remember that and revisit that meeting in my mind. But I felt like it became a part part of because I learned to listen past the details past the, well, I didn't do that. I didn't have that happen to me. I've never been in that situation. Past all of that stuff down to what were they feeling? What principle were they operating under? What was at play here? And where do I have that happening in my life? One way that I made that uh, long journey was through um, accepting others, you know, in the community just as they are. And again, you know, some of this stuff was against my will, right? Uh, kicking and screaming slowly over time, uh, learning to accept others um, just the way they were. And uh, later, not, not at the midday group, but at a later home group that I had, um, we had a piece of our closing statement that just put it so well that I want to share it. Now, this just one sentence in the closing statement, it said, after a while, you'll discover that though you may not like all of us, You'll love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. That is such a, to me, a profound and concise statement of community. Yeah, I might not like everything about everyone. There might be someone I really don't like, but I still love them and show up for them. And if I'm not careful, I may find myself liking them. So when I entered the program, I didn't know the difference between love and like and friendship and buddies and all of those different things. I had to learn about boundaries and I had to learn that just because I had a feeling of affection for somebody, it didn't mean that it was good for me or that it was uh, that I should be acting on those feelings. And so speaking about um, showing up and being present uh, as a principle, as opposed to doing it only if the people that you want to see is going to are going to be there. You know, well, so-and-so's going, I'll be there. I'll, I'll, I'll sit there and talk to them. I'm not going. They're not showing up. You know, are you going to the potluck? Well, I won't go either. You know, I mean, it was that kind of pervasive thinking for me that I had to, to make conscious decisions about. The principle is I'm committed to this group. I am going to show up. And learning that I didn't have to like everybody was very helpful um, because I had permission to have my own feelings and make my own judgments about what I wanted to participate in and at what level. I noticed that life is kind of like a crossword puzzle. I like to do crossword puzzles. Uh, I've done them for a long time, and it's just something that I do to, um, I don't know, engage my attention perhaps. You know, like, like most of us have a very active mind. And sometimes, uh, you know, I often say my mind's like a puppy. Sometimes I need to give it a toy to chew on so I don't, uh, you know, wreck the couch or something like that, you know, do something destructive with it and crossword puzzles. And I've noticed that a crossword puzzle can be so much easier if I'm willing to let other people uh, in with me on it. You know, if I have to literally do everything uh, in a puzzle, it's going to take a certain amount of time. But if, if my goal is to get it done, it's not always to get it done. But if my goal were to be to get it done, then how much easier would it be if I was willing to um, be part of a group that can work on it? It's absolutely true that we 
as a group, we can solve problems so much better than any one of us in isolation, even the most experienced or brightest of us. Uh, that's one thing I love about the way that recovery groups are run is that they're, that, you know, it's very much a bottom up organization for real. Um, you know, there's no owner, there's no boss. Sometimes there are people that think they're a boss, but that doesn't usually last that long. It's a bottom-up organization, and we work by consensus, and we always work on things together. Uh, you know, whether we feel at the beginning like we agree, there might even be a lot of contention about an issue, say at a you know at a group business meeting. But at the end of the day, the the um, the group is what uh, wins the day because it's the group that matters most. And I just love seeing that in action. We're just so much better at navigating life as a group. You know, in the NA literature, it talks about that um, when a new person comes in, it is the group's responsibility to get them started. And it's speaking specifically to sponsorship, but I think that that's really for a group that functions in, in the principle of unity, that that's what made me feel welcome. Everybody was welcoming. I can remember the day I walked into this one particular group and three people got up and came over to introduce themselves. You know, somebody else introduced themselves and poured coffee. I mean, it's it, it's that kind of a feel instead of waiting to see if I'm going to be accepted. You know, somebody else was proactive about that. You know, and something else that, that worked, I talked a little bit about service, uh, but practicing service when you don't like somebody, when I didn't like somebody, was probably one of the bigger growth experiences that I had. Um, I was told that when somebody wants help enough to ask for help, I needed to be able to respond if I could. And so I had more than one occasion where I sponsored somebody that I was not particularly fond of. Um, but I learned boundaries. I had somebody was was mentally ill and they would call me 20 or 30 times a day. And I was complaining to my sponsor and she said, well, who's answering the phone? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm going, oh, man. OK, that's my part in it. But, you know, I, I learned tolerance first before I got to acceptance. Uh, and, you know, and I think somewhere in there it, it moved through the pity part. But which is not acceptance, by the way, um, because that puts me in a position of superiority. But I got to a place of genuine concern for this individual and and wishing them the best and trying to be helpful to them instead of, you know, beating them up with, well, why didn't you do it this way? I love that phrase we use, one of the bunch. I learned to become one of the bunch. And I remember an experience, and this is now really decades before I got sober when I was young. Uh, so I'm talking about, you know, college age, um, just post teen, not far though. Uh, I was in a band. Uh, it was a pretty serious band. And we, we toured around and we recorded some records and we played a lot, you know, probably between six and 16 shows every month. Um, and I loved being part of that group. Um, I think that that was an early experience of belonging that um, while, you know, in and of itself was uh, not not enough to make me generally world connected, it was it was an early experience that I could lean on. And what I remember from it, many things, but one thing that stood out was very important is that I had a particular role, right? I didn't play all the instruments. I played my instrument, my instrument. I had a job to do within the music 
you know, within the art of the music that we were doing. And I loved my job and I loved the other guys and the job that they were doing. And together we did this wonderful thing that no one of us could have done alone. So we each had our part to play. Uh, and yet the group was so much bigger than just uh, some of the individual pieces. So learning to be one of the bunch for which that was kind of an early preview in a way uh, that I could lean on later, you know, when it, when it became time for me um, to get into recovery, that was an experience I could lean on uh, as being one of a group and how, what a wonderful uh, and supportive experience that can be. That relieves so much pressure to be the best, to be the first, to be the boss, to be, you know, um, all that our egos want us to be, all that my ego wants me to be, which can be a real issue. I think in the literature it says a, a worker among workers and a friend among friends. And with my overactive inner critic that says you're not doing enough, you need to you need to do this, oh, why don't you go help them, and, and all of those kinds of things, you know, it's been a very helpful phrase, being just one of many, to be able to no, I'm not shirking my duty, and I don't have to be the hero. I saw that again um, much, much later than, than when I was playing music, when I really started to get involved in the Unity Church that I was a part of. You know, for, for many years there, um, I was kind of an attendee. You know, we, we say congregant. Uh, I think I was more of an attendee even than a congregant. Uh, but at some point along the way. And again, this roughly coincides with uh, when I got on my recovery path, I began to become a part of the church and to volunteer for things, simple things. Like uh, there was a period of time where I was the one that sent out the birthday cards. You know, we had a list of, of all the uh, members and everyone's birthday. And so every month I would send a card out to every person who had a birthday that month. And so I was the birthday card volunteer. You know, that was a way to get involved and, you know, and, and ended up doing some, uh, even some guest speaking, which is horrifying, uh, for me and frightening. And I bet, and, uh, and I'm, I hope it wasn't recorded. Uh, <laughs> and, and I ended up on the board, you know, I ended up uh, being asked to stand for a board position. And so just by uh, being willing to not just to stand uh, around the edges and watch, but to actually uh, put effort into being a part of that church community, um, it really just opened more and more doors. And of course, that uh, ended up with me at uh, Unity Institute and Seminary, ironically enough. I think that I started to bridge the gap between feeling connected with people and feeling connected in the world when I was asked to be a prayer chaplain. That I then was in a position of, it wasn't a one-on-one -on -one relationship, it was a one-to-many relationship, and it could be anybody at any time that wanted to be held in prayer, that wanted to, to pray about a particular um, thing that was on their heart or their mind. And so I started learning um, a lot of, um, well, using, maybe using is a better word, those same listening skills that we talked about earlier uh, to be able to connect both with the person and with God as I understand God in a way that was truly helpful to this other individual. And that's what started my journey. Yeah, making a, a heart connection, one 
person at a time. I can see that. I'm reminded now, so I mentioned the uh, Unity Institute and Seminary where we both uh, went, attended, um, edumified and ordained. Um, (laughs) That that was a still to this day unique experience of community because everyone there had answered a call, which is I still think that's a weird thing to do, even though I do it all the time now in my life. We've all answered a call by this invisible uh, you know, influence we call spirit to the point where we were willing to set down everything else that we were doing in the world, physically relocate to Unity Village. At that time, that's how it worked. It doesn't work that way anymore. But physically relocate and uh, spend three years of our life. You know, that's a like career killing amount of time to spend doing something like uh, being in seminary and becoming a minister. But it created such a powerful um, experience of connection and togetherness. And, and, and one way that it stood out most to me, so I'm going to tell the story of our, one of our teachers, Dr. Jerry, I don't know if you had Dr. Jerry. We had Dr. Jerry for homiletics. Well, Dr. Jerry was a Lutheran, not a unity guy. He was a Lutheran. He was a conservative Lutheran uh, pastor uh, with a you know with a, a a doctor of ministry and um, I remember him uh, sometimes in our homiletics class just sort of looking at us like what planet are you guys coming from I don't know where you're getting these ideas about the nature of God and what all this stuff means but I'll tell you what Jerry Doctor Jerry was truly a man of spirit truly had a heart of gold and he also looked around and he saw how much we loved each other that's all he had to know he knew that we were on to something by the way that we cared about each other uh, it, it's it's like a recovery group um, you know multiplied many times over and so that was a profound experience of being one of the bunch, you know, built on other prior experiences of being one of the bunch. And to see Dr. Jerry um, observing and being welcomed and loved and becoming a part of who we are, even though he's coming from such a different uh, background, said so much to me about the power of the unity community there. One of my experiences at the unity community was speaking circles. We were introduced to the concept that we could both learn how to be there for one another and develop our ability to speak off the cuff with this. Um, there's a whole thing you can look up online about speaking circles. But there's a group of us that made a commitment. We decided we'd show up, and every Sunday night for almost, well, for two and a half years, I think, we showed up as a group. We, I would bring soup or somebody would bring something to eat, and then we would each take our turn, three to five minutes, on any subject we wanted to, to speak about. And, you know, after the first layer, the first meeting or two, um, you know, real started showing up and authenticity started showing up and feelings and emotions started showing up. And the vulnerability that occurred because of being in that group bonded us in a way that I have not had that experience otherwise in a short amount of time. That was really profound for me. Yeah, I think I can see how the uh, our experiences of community have built on one another, you know, beginning with, as we said, that willingness simply to show up and be a part of a recovery community. But now it is time for us to move into action. 
Uh, Unity's fifth principle states, it's not enough to know these truths, we must live them. That means we must each take action in order to grow and recover. So here's something you can do now and carry into this week to move from living in isolation to the joys of being connected using the principle of unity. So think of a way that you could be isolating yourself, something that you'd like to heal and transform. Could it be in the way that you approach your work, maybe your loner attitude? Or maybe your instinct to remain independent is harming your romantic relationships. Or perhaps you would like to simply have more friends to connect with. What's important is that we just pick one thing, preferably something simple, that we can take into a quiet time of prayer and meditation. Simply relax and take it easy. No need to struggle. So for an example today, let's use always going it alone with work tasks, for example. So use a statement of power, or what we refer to in the unity movement as a denial, to deny any power to this idea that you have to do it all yourself. You could say something like, isolating at work is not in alignment with my true nature. Repeat that a few times in your head or aloud and say it with conviction. Isolating at work is not in alignment with my true nature. And follow that up immediately with a bold, positive affirmation of a new experience. So you could say, I am open to and welcome the assistance of others as I do what needs to be done. And then take a few quiet moments just to relax and take it easy. There's no need to struggle. Give thanks for your new experience in the world and move on with your day. Isolating at work is not in alignment with my true nature. I am open to and welcome the assistance of others as I do what needs to be done. So we've come to the end of our time together here today, and we hope that you found something that can help you on your recovery path. We both bless you on your journey. Thank you, listeners and callers, and thank you so much to my co-host, Reverend Dan Beckett, for all the insights in our discussion today. Listeners, again, if you'd like to, you can connect with us on our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery, and give us your thoughts and feedback. And we invite you to join us again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central. Until then, have a wonder-filled week. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Aaron Debbie Smith, and Meredith Tolleson. We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.